producer for the PBS television show My Music series, he came up to me and he very seriously asked me, what is the difference between a violin and a viola? But he pronounced it viola. And this made me smile. And I don't remember my exact answer. But I thought today would dedicate the podcast to the question. Welcome back to Rondo. I'm Paula Tuttle, and today we're talking about everything viola. Yes, the viola is the middle child of the string family. In string quartets, you have two violins. Maybe think of them as twins. The viola is the middle child, and the cello is the lowest voice. Who's oldest and youngest, it doesn't matter. We all know the middle child is sometimes overlooked, not given the spotlight, and thought to disappear into the background. Maybe that's true, because many composers treat the viola like it's of secondary importance. But that's not true of the greatest composers. J.S. Bach wrote viola parts in the Brandenburg concertos that are equally as hard as the violin and cello parts. In the third Brandenburg, there are solos of a virtuosic nature that are often found on auditions. The sixth Brandenburg uses the viola as the top voice. It's scored for two viola de braccio, two viola de gamba, violoncello, and violin with cembalo. A little translation. Viola de braccio is a viol held in the arms. A viola de gamba, well, gamba is legs. And it sounds like this. Telemann, Hofmeister, and Stamitz wrote some of the earliest concerti for viola. Mozart wrote the Sinfonia Concertante for violin and viola. It's in E-flat, but the composer, in a side wink, suggests the violist read it in D major and tune the strings up a semitone, and he actually scored it that way. The act of playing a violin, cello, or viola in a non-standard tuning is called scoratura. So it's much easier to play in D major than E flat. Was Mozart trying to say something about violists? No, he was actually trying to give the viola a brighter tone, something that would make it stand out in the ensemble. Double bassists do this too. Most of their solo literature is played a step higher. So when you go to a bass recital, sometimes you see a bass sitting in the back of the stage because they don't just retune their basses, They have different strings. Composers sometimes write different tunings. The two tunings are referred to as solo tuning and orchestral tuning. Most musicians think of the genes of the double bass being different from the rest of the orchestral strings. 
its mechanical qualities, its tuning, the way it resonates, they're different. And the lineage it comes from is closer to the viola da gamba. So a podcast about the double bass seems to be in order. Because there's so much more to talk about with the viola. Here's a fact that might surprise you. A Stradivarius viola is worth more than a Stradivarius violin. If all the factors like condition and who owned it previously are equal, the violas are rarer, so they're more valuable. The same goes for Guarneri's and other makers. So one point in the viola column. Violists and violas, they get a bad rap. And why is that? Because they are different. Violists read alto clef, which lies between treble and bass clef. They are the only instrument to read the clef. Pianists need to read it if they are to play piano quartets by Brahms, but they don't have to play it. Same with conductors. They won't get too far if they don't learn to read the alto clef well enough to play the line on the piano or solfege the part. But the main reason violists are poked at. For centuries, their part was utilitarian at best. Composers need the harmony filled out, and the viola's placement in the hierarchy of music theory, the alto, it made their line monotonous. The stereotypical viola part is afterbeats and rhythmic texture with little movement. Wallpaper, as some musicians refer to it. At some point, some people assumed that all viola players were beginners and not as advanced. So other musicians take to making jokes about these poor but trustworthy instrumentalists. Where would we be without them? It's become even more popular in, like, say, the last 30 years, to the point that there's even a study of the evolution of the jokes. Where was I when I heard my first viola joke? And what was it? I remember. I was on a tour in Florida. A violinist from Brazil told me this one. What's the difference between a violin and a viola? The viola burns longer. I did not give this answer to the producer of the PBS show who asked me the very same question. But I confess, I did succumb once in a different situation. A very serious moment, actually. We were negotiating a collective bargaining agreement for the Pittsburgh Ballet Theater Orchestra, and the management provided us with language referring to loss of tenure. Very serious stuff in the labor world. So the top of their list for reasons to lose tenure, they had death. One word on its own line. The union read the proposal quietly, and you could hear breathing, but not much. It was a somber moment. I thought I'd lighten things up. I said, we'd like to amend the first item, death. More silence. How so? My cohorts were looking surprised too. So I continued, in the case of violists, we'd like to say they simply move back a stand. Terrified silence was followed by loud laughter on the union side of the table. The management continued to look baffled. So our president explained it, and everybody had a laugh. So the viola served as a great icebreaker. And I hope no one takes offense. You see, the viola joke gives more depth, character, and interest to the instrument. It's the fun instrument, maybe even the best instrument. In many ways, it's true. It gets great parts. It's easier to carry than the cello. 
There are fewer violists, so if you are a great player, you will get more work than violinists of equal caliber. And the viola, with its inner workings, sometimes it has its fingers on the controls. It determines the temperature, the light, and the texture, and the perfume. Viola jokes—they go way back. What was the first viola joke? Some people say this story from the early 1700s in Italy sparked the movement. The violinist Francesco Gemignani moved to London in 1714, like so many other expat musicians. He was appointed head, meaning concertmaster, and he was so unsteady, he was demoted to viola. A few years later, in 1752, Johann Joachim Quantz said that the viola is of little importance. That able musicians are not easily persuaded to take it up, but maybe we back up really far in Shakespeare. Yes, Shakespeare. Before the modern viola was completely known or realized, the playwright assigns the closest thing he can to a viola to an unfortunate character, Andrew in Twelfth Night. People say if Shakespeare knew about the viola, he would have assigned the viola to Andrew. Okay, maybe it's all a myth. Getting granular about viola jokes, there are six categories. The first is disparaging to the instrument. Second, disparaging to the player. Third, jokes that are easily understandable outside of music circles that are often disparaging to the instrument and the players. Fourth, jokes that are inside jokes, only to be understood by musicians. Fifth are reverse jokes, the ones the violists tell, which makes someone else, another instrument, the butt of the joke. And a final category, the narrative. So you say, which one is the inside joke? Well, it varies. At a viola conference, there was a buzz going around about a violist who could play thirty-second notes. And there was to be a demonstration, and a crowd gathered, and they begged the violist to take out their instrument and demonstrate. So he did, and indeed, the violist played one. Is that an inside joke? Maybe, or maybe the inside joke is a well-known viola joke that gets abbreviated. If you're in the know, you get the joke. When the drum stops, the viola solo starts. That's one. It's a very long joke. I remember a conductor told us this one about the viola solo after the drum stops, when we were waiting for the stage to reset. If you want to read it, I'll post a link in the show notes. It's Stephanie Tredick's viola joke page. It's one of the original, the original page on the internet. The viola isn't really a funny instrument. It's likened to a side character in an opera or a hit comedy. They can be funny. They can also be crude, a villain, or incredibly sweet. You notice them when they play by themselves, but their usual role is to be ordinary. They can do that too. They can be that not too beautiful passerby that you need in a street scene. The timbre of the viola is more relevant than ever. It speaks so many more colors and expression than most instruments. It's not plain. 
The viola can be coarser and maybe a little less singing than the violin and cello, but it's more attractive in this century. Think of the people we consider beautiful in this decade compared to the first 30 or 40 years of film. Compare the newest Lois Lane to Margot Kidder. Did we actually think she was pretty? Some people did. The viola has more edges, a character that's unique. It's not always pretty. It's earthy. Its gender identity follows modern wokeism, maybe. It's not male or female. It fluctuates. It's non-binary. It's underserved. It doesn't get the attention it deserves. It's willing to be of service. It supports. It's okay not getting the limelight. Its ego is in check. They don't need to be out front to know they did good work. In all aspects, the viola is a humble hero. And we can't make great music without it. Hector Berlioz wrote Harold in Italy, which is a symphony with viola obbligato. Paganini actually asked Berlioz to write something for the viola, but after seeing the sketch, Paganini didn't like the work because there were too many rests and the piece wasn't virtuosic. You see, Paganini owned a beautiful Stradivarius viola and he had nothing to play on it. Maybe Berlioz made the wrong call, but he did want to put the spotlight on the viola. He thought of the viola as the Cinderella of the instrument world the diamond in the rough, an instrument not fully understood or appreciated, nor had it reached its potential. I think he was right about that. So another point in the viola column, and one against, because Berlioz missed the mark. 20th century composers, and especially the English composers, have done justice to the instrument. But even before that, Mozart and Beethoven, and Bach, as we mentioned, they gave the instrument good parts, and all three played the viola time to time, which actually says something about the preference to inner voices. Mozart wrote the viola quintets, Beethoven the duet for viola and cello, two eyeglasses obbligato, and Mozart the Sinfonia Concertante. So yeah, in the 20th century, we have Benjamin Britten, Paul Hinmith, Rebecca Clark, three violists writing exceptional works for viola, and other significant works by Bartok, Von Williams, and Walton. And as I mentioned, lots of composers seem to play the viola, adding to the list Schubert, Mendelssohn, Haydn, and Dvorak. This week I played a short recital with a string quartet, and it was remarked the viola was surprisingly prominent. And I considered the program. It included Britten, Dvorak, and Mozart, three composers who enjoyed playing the viola. After our concert, I talked to the violist, Stephen Weiss, and he told me about this composer. One modern composer that I highly recommend be brought into the conversation when it comes to the viola is a man named Kenji Bunch. 
he is a violist himself, a graduate of the Eastman School of Music, and he wrote a lot of music that experiments with lots of different tunings, lots of different uh, sonorities and scale patterns, particularly the whole tone patterns and the blues scale. I would say probably his most famous piece that he's written is called The Three G's. There's a YouTube video of him performing it himself but essentially what happens is he takes the d string and tunes it down to g and he turns the a string down to g so the tuning quite literally has three g's in it which is where the name comes from i'm gonna play one more tune it's called the three g's actually uh, recording a CD of this music, which uh, hopefully will be available once I actually do that. <laughs> the viola is the underlying genius in the tapestry. Maybe it's not for the novice composer, because the clef is like a secret password. Shibboleth. Unlocking its nuance is the key. As a final note, please don't take the viola jokes personally. But sometimes they are mean-hearted. We just all want to have a good laugh. My favorite viola joke, which is, um, how do you get a violist to play ricochet? You write solo over a whole note. So please share this episode and feel free to share the viola jokes too. I hope you'll go and listen to some viola playing soon. Listen to the viola part in the Brandenburg. Or listen to the violists in the symphony. I love the viola. Have a great week, and we'll see you next time.